The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Friday, it's News Talk, it's The Right Hook and this is Shane Coleman standing in for George. We want to start with those comments uh, from earlier in the week from comedian David McSavage. He said he wasn't going to pay his TV licence over grievances he has with the national broadcaster's output. Whatever your view, his stance nevertheless brings up an interesting question. What exactly are we paying for when we pay our TV licence? And given the way the media has evolved in recent years with people often not watching telly at all, watching stream services, is a TV licence even relevant anymore? Well, to discuss all this, we're joined by Barry Finnegan, Senior Lecturer at the Faculty of Journalism and Media Communications at Griffith College. Barry, thanks indeed for coming in to us. The TV licence, is it a bit of an anachronism in in this day and age? Not at all. It's an essential component of every democratic society. Uh, Just two years ago, the Germans realised that uh, no more than here, uh, younger people are stopping to buy actual television televisions and watching content online on their laptops and computers and phones. And so they shifted to a household media charge. And um, all the uh, the academic studies over the last 20, 30 years show that countries that have ring-fenced funding for national state broadcasters... uh, um, uh, what it does is it lifts the quality of news on television in both the public and private sector. It uh, countries with well-funded central uh, uh, core funding for uh, public service television also has much better investigative journalism as well. And so, if we go back about seven years and we look at an interview with uh, Rupert Murdoch, he was asked, "Hey." It's the same company. What's the story with the huge difference between Fox News in America and Sky News in Britain? And his answer was simple. It's a different market with different competition. We're competing with the BBC uh, in England. Uh, And um, his point was the Fox News just wouldn't work. It would be laughed out of it for its ridiculous extreme bias on one extreme or the other. And what what licence fee funding does is allows um, a, a state broadcaster to obey the law, which means that it must prevent present uh, reasonably fair, impartial news, investigative journalism and reflect as well the diversity of people that exist in that society and make TV programmes for all of them, not just for the ones uh, who can buy mm. products and services and generate a profit. Yeah, all very worthwhile, obviously, mm-hmm. but I'm um, looking at, at RT2. You don't see a lot of public service broadcasting uh, on on RTE too. Well, this is the classic damned if they do, damned if they don't. If RTE don't produce any reasonable middle slash lowbrow popular entertainment, they're lambasted for being too highbrow. And if they produce too much high quality, uh, uh, you know, uh, expensive investigative journalism and uh, ballet and uh, show jumping, they're lambasted for being too elitist. And so what uh, you generally find across the the advanced uh, European uh, industrialised democratic societies, mostly northern European countries, is that the public service broadcaster straddles both of those camps. Mm. One where they're providing, you know, uh, uh, popular um, uh, entertaining sh- entertainment shows and um, and the, the, the serious uh, you know journalism and investigative journalism and it's the whole idea that you can have a varied diet um, you don't need to survive on junk food and you don't need to eat salad and granola all day either you can have the odd biscuit and pig out in the chocolate bar now and again yeah you fair know. enough no that's, that's fine it do in other countries do public service broadcasters also get to raise money from advertising as well obviously the BBC don't 
don't do that. They don't do that because um, if you look at a city the size of Manchester, four and a half million people, we've got four and a half million people here in the Republic, um, or Ireland as it's known in the Constitution, um, <laughs> not a Republic, there's only a football team. Um, we've got uh, RTE1, RTE2, TG Cahar, uh, 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 Radio, Radio Nagelta, um Radio 1 and, uh, and, and, and 2FM. Uh, you know, find me a comparable city in the world with four and a half million people who can, who can generate that. Uh, mm-hmm. Britain has uh, 70 million people and so there's no need for them to collect advertising and so um, small, medium-sized countries, uh, small countries like Ireland, there, there are other cases around the world where, where, where both is required. What about the argument though that RT isn't the only station that does uh, public service broadcasting? Um, mm-hmm. You know, we would do it uh, on... Obviously, it's a TV license. We would do it on on, on radio. We would do pu- public service broadcasting. Uh, TV3 would argue some some of the programs they do would be public service broadcasting. That the cake should be shared out a bit a bit more widely than it is. Well, the purpose of TV3 is to generate profits for its shareholders. It's illegal and immoral for it to do anything other. Company law is very clear that if you're a quote in the stock exchange or if you're a senior executive in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a company, you're legally bound to maximise profits and minimise costs. Whereas an RTE, they're legally bound to serve the public interest, which is a wholly different uh, set of set of criteria. And so what many, many, many academic studies show over decades is that purpose dictates content. And again, what happens is, is whether it's Norway, Germany, Denmark, France, um, it is the expensive to produce, labour intensive, time consuming, legally risky investigative journalism, which is the high, which is the pinnacle of of public service uh, television. It's not about the money; it's about serving the public yeah, interest. Yeah, except I mean, and that's fair enough. But mm. I mean. I mean, I would imagine it's a pretty small share of the licence fee money goes on primetime investigators. Well, I teach investigative journalism. I produce the Griffith Book of Investigative Journalism of our students every year, so I'm kind of biased on that end of things, I have yeah. to say. No, investigative uh, journalism is very important, look, absolutely. And, like, and primetime investigators does a lot of really good work. I'm not yeah. in any way knocking it. Yeah. But I'm just putting it to you that it's a pretty small percentage of the RT budget goes on primetime investigates. Well, look, I mean, if I had anything to do with it, it would be a lot more. And I think there are huge areas for improvement in RTE, uh, things like the Audience Council. I think there could be a, a, a five-year um, sort of a, a a period where they have more clout, where um, maybe the management is obliged to take on board. I mean, uh, the Audience Council could be brought out to bring in um, the interests of various sectors in Irish society uh, in, in, in terms of age profile, in terms of economic background, in terms of political aspirations. And okay. a, a civil society groups could, could inject more into okay. having a diktat on, on what... Um, I'll just finish with one very, very, very quick point. Yeah. Um, oh, no, we're not finished. Oh, great stuff, yeah. great stuff. Great <laughs> stuff. I, I, I wanted to get to the elephant in the room, but go on. Ah, yeah. Look, at, and, uh, but I'll say one thing is that... Um, uh, what the academic studies show is that uh, take a country like Finland, which has even better funding for its for its public service television and really tight regulations on uh, what is and is not news for for commercial companies. They discovered that the bottom one fifth of wage earners and the top one fifth of wage earners, right? So the richest and the poorest sections of society, they sit them down, they ask them loads of questions about politics, domestic and international, and there's a zero percent knowledge gap between the rich and poor, right? And one of the reasons for that is because of the active state interference in the media industry, where they go, with being a citizen in a democratic society, you get rights. But these come with duties. And those duties include, um, we're going to 
force radio stations to have news on the hour. We're going to dictate what a substantive news is. And if you have an, a license, you've got to have a person for and against an issue when they're, when they're in studio um, and, and other criteria like that. Okay. England has a 16% gap, but the USA has a 40, 40, a 40% knowledge gap about political issues between the rich and poor. And the question is, how can you operate a democratic society if, if there's such a lack of understanding and knowledge about politics okay. among a okay. huge okay. All really good points. All really good points. Sure. And very hard to argue with. Isn't the problem that we're heading into a, uh, a a future where less and less people are actually watching TV? And there will be a lot of people who can legitimately say, I'm not paying a TV license because I don't have a TV. Yeah, but yeah, I've seen the new series of X, Y and Z. And mm-hmm. yes, I have Netflix, but uh, but I'm, I'm not watching Norte. I'm not watching television. I don't have a television set. It's a, it's a tough old point to get across. But if you hammer home, I think, to people, the basic fact like that, you know, you want to you want to know about the diversity of options you have when it comes to an election. Um, you want to, I mean, you know, the RT did that thing where like every candidate in the country had a little thing on its uh, on, on, on the RT website about every candidate in the country. I mean, that, that cost them a lot of money to do that. Do you know what I mean? Well, I we did genuine. it here. Oh, you guys did it here as well. As well yeah. Look, we, we can't fault News Talk. Take about right? Audrey Flynn, our uh, political uh, analyst, yeah. Okay. And, um, it, but again, the, the, prob- the thing is, is that what studies show is that where the public service uh, is it goes, there's less direct pressure on organisations like News Talk to stump up the cash to keep the quality level high and that it's healthy for the market it's healthy for the private it's, don't get me wrong it's healthy for the public sector okay. to have good no, private great, sector uh, absolutely, there absolutely. As well. the problem is look I mean we don't like paying taxes in this country you saw what happened with the water I charge I don't think that's true I don't think it's true. Just have a look at the water charges. Well, I mean, well look at the way Renewer. Renewer was trying to come in with the uh, abolish uh, RTE uh, license fee and get a flat rate of tax of 23%. And they were completely rejected. I don't think it was because of that particular uh, plan. Well, that the, the, reality is, the reality is we, we tried, uh, the government tried a pretty modest water charges. It led to huge protests on the streets. The property tax is, ran is, into is, huge is, problems. Is, 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 it's is, only is, when the revenue commissioners got involved that it kind of softened yeah, people's cough on yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point of view, Shane, but the point... The point the you're, the, sorry, we should explain. You're talking about replacing the, the licence fee with a... Uh, how would you describe it? Like household a, media charge. A household media absolutely. charge, which everyone would have absolutely. to pay if you had a laptop or... Well, you see, people in this country have absolutely no problem paying their taxes, as they do, and uh, the water system in the country is paid for by tax. Yeah, well, it's we're a not choice going, we're as to whether you want to have it a regressive or a progressive taxation. Yeah, um, you know, if it's ba- if it's based on people's income, it's progressive. Yeah, we're if not. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're not. We're not. We're not debating. Uh, we're not debating the water charges well, here. Now. Bring, the reality bring, is bring, bringing it up as a, as as a sort of part of this discussion that uh, we don't like paying taxes. No, we we we're okay with paying taxes. We're not okay with paying taxes. You I can't say we're okay. Mis- I think you're misunderstanding. Nobody's objecting to pay, to water being paid for by by central taxation. I mean, the progressive Democrats and the renewal what. They, they don't the like the, the point is Barry I they do. don't like paying a new tax people do not like paying and if you change this however logical the arguments and I happen to personally agree with them um, mm. however logical they are there will be a backlash and well, that's it's why it has let's, let's not beat around the bush here it's why it hasn't happened it's why uh, Alex White backed away from it when he thought about doing it I think, I think he no said doubt. there wasn't I think he said there wasn't enough information or something out there about people Oh it was a sensible move my dog getting lashed and kicked all around the place with the property tax and the water tax there's no doubt about it it would have been politically untenable for them but um, you know uh, 
if a government wants to uh, proceed with sort of um, uh, regressive taxations that penalise people um, where, you know, a larger percentage of your entire income is paid if you're poorer and a much smaller percentage of your income is paid if you're richer, that's a kind of goes against the maximum of that taxation and it's not very beneficial to a social democratic society. Yeah, but a TV you know. licence has nothing to do with what you earn. It's a, it's a flat charge. Oh, I, I'm just referring to the property tax and, yeah. uh, and, the, and the other one. Now, yes, there, there is, there, there, there are uh, the Scandinavian countries, for well, example. Well, imagine water charges based on what you use, but I mean, we won't get into uh, well, we won't, we mean, won't it's, get it's, into it's, that. It's, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. not. Uh, that's not the proposal well, at all. But only because of the protest. But anyway, go on. Well, there's no intention of putting meters into people's apartments. Then we're going to charge them a flat fee because it's yeah. too anyway, expensive. Go on, but anyway, go on. You're, you're, yeah. um, the, in, in, in Norway and in Sweden and in Denmark, um, the television license fee and the media or the media household charge is linked to income. And if you're a minimum income person, uh, you're paying like 50 quid. And if you're a, a big income person, you're paying 220. And if you're if you're in, earning 35 grand, you're paying 100, 120, 150. And it is linked to income in, in Scandinavian countries. And it's an excellent idea to link it. OK, so you don't have a TV. You don't really watch Fair City. You're not much of a. Uh, uh, you're not much for waiting for the ads to buffer on 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 the, you know on RTE um, on, online. Um, you know it's a. You know they they really could spend more of their resources on on getting the website uh, working uh, when lots of people want to watch it, but. Um, you get to live in a society that has a better quality of public debate, more well-informed citizens, and better public services okay. if you have public service. If you okay. have public, you made the argument well, and I look forward to you making the argument when some government is brave I'm enough to finally you, uh, go about bringing in this. It will, yes. it will come, and I think it'll I look be an interesting to it, debate. Shane. Okay, uh, Barry Finnegan, uh, senior lecturer at the Faculty of Journalism and Media Communications at Griffith College. Thanks indeed for joining us. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, this week, Tesla Motors announced the launch of its first car aimed at the mass market with 325,000 pre-orders already in the first week. That's despite the fact the first models won't appear for 18 months. Now, Irish consumers have been pretty slow at taking to electric vehicles. So is all this about to change? Uh, we're joined by Conor Faulkner, uh, Director of Consumer Affairs at AR. And Conor, thanks indeed for coming in to us. Hi. The future is electric, isn't it, for cars? Oh, I think so, yeah. I think, I mean, it, it will be the technology of the future. It is fantastic what is already achieved with it. I had an electric car myself for about six weeks as part of an ESB pilot project a few years ago, and really impressive technology, but it's moved on even since then. Um, but I, I used it for six weeks, um, you know, very reliable, did everything it said in the tin, gave you a normal driving experience, very pleasant car to drive, and where I would have spent a little over €90 Euro on fuel, on ordinary fuel in an ordinary car... I spent, in fact, I think about 17 or 18 euro. This is in, what, about, about a month or six weeks? Six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it was very, very good. Now, the car that I had had, had limited range, and that was one of the big concerns. In fact, that, that's probably the big drawback. Yeah, what is it now? Is it kind fear. of 100 kilometres or so? Well, it'll vary by model and it'll also vary by how uh, forcibly you drive it. So if you choose to drive the car at the maximum end of its potential, you'll wear down the battery faster. Uh, you know, a bit like your smartphone. If you have every app in creation open yeah, on the okay. thing, it'll chew up your battery life, whereas you, you can put it into an eco mode and use it more conservatively. But that is the big 
inhibitor for consumers at the moment, I think, and it seems to be what's putting Irish consumers off. But ESB, to be fair to them, or Electric Ireland, have invested in... I mean, they now have about 1,200 charge sites around the country, and there are domestic ones and stuff as well. So it's beginning to be more available. But what's coming in the technology is, is to my mind, very exciting. I think you've got to get the electric car to the point where it mirrors petrol or diesel. And Tesla, that, that Model 3 that they were uh, you know, talking about taking pre-orders from during the week, uh, they, they've got their range up to 215 miles. So that's 344 kilometres mm. in a vehicle that can have a fast charge capacity as well. So you're almost getting to the stage where you're, you're matching anything an internal combustion engine can do. And they really are making believers of the consumer. I mean, they, 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 they say there's 325,000 people who expressed interest. They didn't just express interest. They paid a $1,000 deposit. Yeah. So they've collected... They put their money where their mouth was, so yeah. they've collected $325 million worth of revenue in pre-orders for these vehicles. They're going to retail them at $35,000. And, you know, some of the specifications on the thing are absolutely fantastic, including one of the one of the party pieces of an electric vehicle, its acceleration from rest. Extraordinary. The Tesla they're talking about there, 0 to 60 in less than six seconds for... A small family saloon. I mean, Not that we're advocating anybody well, try no, that, of course. Well, no, indeed. But I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the, in a funny way, that that is how cars have been sold. I mean, you you will advertise something way beyond its sort of normal usage, but but the consumer kind of wants to know the car can do that. So they're excited by capabilities. A bit like selling your 4 by 4 you know, on the grounds that this thing can go up the side of a mountain and nothing can stop it. And this makes it attractive to somebody who's going to potter around the suburbs. <laughs> um, and there's a, so there's an element of that. People want their electric car to be able to do all of these things before they're convinced. And Ireland isn't convinced yet. But Are we, we more reluctant than most? No, I think it's been a slow adoption curve right around Europe. But I think it'll pick up quickly. I mean, if you look at last year, for example, we sold a little under 500 pure electric cars in Ireland and about 1,500 hybrids. So that's pretty small numbers. You know, that's around about one and a half to two percent. But I think it could actually take off with a sort of a hockey stick curve. It could take off very, very quickly when it does. I mean, the example that I've been giving is, you remember the when mobile phones were coming into vogue first? Yeah. First time you saw one of those, it was the size of a brick. You know, it was bigger than the pint. And the guy who, who brought it into the pub, you know, looked like an awful idiot. People and were laughing. Battery, people yeah, were yeah. laughing at him. The battery only lasted an hour and a half. And the whole thing seemed ridiculous. And we got from there to the iPhone in a dozen years. Yeah. And if there's anything like that rate of progress on electric cars, and there is, I mean, you know, the, the, the Tesla that they're talking about launching has an autopilot mode. So you have like a self-driving electric car. And it's extraordinary. And, and Ireland really should be more enthusiastic about this than other countries. We don't have any of our own oil. There's all sorts of good reasons why yeah. we should be pushing the technology. A couple of quick fire questions for you just mm. before I let you go. Does it take long to charge a car? Because obviously when you're putting diesel or petrol in a car, it takes two minutes. It takes two minutes. Uh, it's one of the Achilles heels of electric at the moment. Uh, there's two ways of charging it. You charge it for a long period of time and that can take, the, you're talking overnight to fully recharge its battery. So part of your routine, like plugging in your smartphone, you plug in your car when you park it at night. Now there are fast charge options that will give you like an 80% charge in 20 minutes, uh, but it is an inhibitor uh, and, and we need that to improve a bit because at the moment that that just about fails to match the performance of a petrol car. So if I if I'm going to go down to Cork now, I want to know my car can get there. I don't want to be told I have to stop for 20 minutes halfway there. But but the improvements are happening so rapidly that I think we will very, very quickly get there with battery technology. And pretty soon, 
those limitations, I think, will be gone. But for now, it's one of those things dragging people back. You know? I was watching a program last night about the Flying Scotsman and how you know, yeah. ste- steam uh, engines were obviously are obviously a thing of the past. Mm. Will we be talking about diesel and petrol cars in that way in 40, 50 years' time, do you think? Well, in, in terms of the basic unit of power for a car, so your car and my car and what moves our family around, yeah, I think we will have gone electric or electric hybrid in probably less time than that. I mean, the technology is that exciting. Um, do you remember 088 phones? Uh, you yeah. know, there's a amusing piece of uh, YouTube footage about a kid trying to use a rotary dial phone and having no idea what they're meant to do with the dial. We, we may well be looking at, at the traditional petrol or diesel engine in just that way in, in less time than people appreciate, unless it makes some sort of vinyl comeback. But uh, but yeah, I do believe electric yeah. is probably the future, yeah. Interesting analogy. I was trying to explain to my kids the other day why people used to say the, their number when they, when they answered <laughs> the phone. They said, what, you said your own? Yeah, it was, and I was trying to explain. I, I could. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, Conor Falkland, Director of Consumer Affairs at AR, and thanks Thank indeed for coming into us. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie You've probably heard or read in the newspapers that France has become the latest country to criminalise the purchase of sex. Uh, it follows on, I suppose, that we should be scrutinising Ireland's results, uh, or laws rather, as a result. Similar law has been in the pipeline here for some time. It passed through the Shannon uh, during the previous law, but was never enacted because of the general election. So I suppose the question is, where are we now? To discuss this, we're joined by uh, Kate McGrew of Sex Workers Alliance Ireland and Ruth Breslin, Policy and Communications Manager at Ruama. Um, Ruth, I might start with you. Uh, sure. uh, That bill is kind of in abeyance, basically, while a new government uh, comes in at the moment. I I assume you're welcome. You welcome what's happened in France. Absolutely. So in terms of where our bill is, the sexual offences bill, it was literally on the agenda just as the door was dissolved. Um, It was in the second stage in the door. It was very, very close to completion. Has grand cross party support um, a law for a lot of people campaigning behind it. And obviously, we at Raham are very keen to see this implemented. And yes, it is linked and related to the work that's been done in France in terms of the legislation that they've just brought in, which from our perspective is an extremely positive move in terms of a very clear law that decriminalises those who sell sex, but criminalises the buyers and also kind of increases the sanctions for those who pimp and traffic and essentially profit from the prostitution of others. So we're just really looking for a restart of the bill to pick up where we left off just before the door Are you confident you'll get that if if the doll ever does uh, manage to get around to elect? Well, once they the do manage to put themselves together in government, we are very confident because we are so co- close to completion and that cross-party support absolutely still does exist. So, you know, we really are very positive, feeling very positive about it and hoping that it'll happen quite quickly because it's about time. This has been a long time coming, really. OK, Kate McGrew, Sex Workers Alliance Ireland. What's your difficulty with this legislation? Uh, the main problem is that the, the very people who it's about are the people that don't want it. It's current sex workers. It's um, This is a law based on ideology as opposed to evidence and opposed to harm reduction. So um, what is so problematic about it is that um, even it's purporting to help people who are um, selling sex, it's purported to decriminalize the worker, but that's not true. I'll tell you, even even when somebody is allowed to sell sex, for example, myself alone working indoors, um, 
uh, very narrow way that I can work legally, I'm still um, suffer under criminal sanctions when they criminalize a client. And beyond that, the bill. Um, it doubles fines for people working together for safety. It, it, they now face custodial sentences. Outdoor workers are recriminalized under a public order act with steeper um, criminal, with, with steeper uh, fees. So what is so disconcerting is that it seems that there is a willingness basically to throw people under the bus for, an, for, an, for a moral position. And it's sort of the idea of you break a few eggs to make an omelet. And, and that's so unacceptable that for the people who today and tomorrow are going to suffer because we'll have less trust with the police, we'll have less access to the justice system, and the power dynamic will tip in favor of the client. It is we, it is the sex workers who will suffer for this ideology that, frankly, uh, we're seeing nowhere. There's nowhere in the world okay. where people don't need to or want to buy and sell sex. Okay, uh, Ruth Breslin, uh, ideology, not evidence. Evidence. Plenty of evidence. We have this law in a number of countries. It's, we can no longer just call it the Nordic model. It started off in the Nordic countries in Sweden, Norway, Iceland, but it's actually become a European model now because we can now see the same in Northern Ireland and in France. And essentially, the message of the law is to tell buyers that it's not acceptable to be able to purchase sexual access to somebody's body for your own sexual pleasure, pleasure particularly when those people are, by and large, very, very vulnerable women. So what we are doing at Rohama is really advocating on behalf of women that are in the sex industry right now. The thing is, they're very marginalised and vulnerable women. They're migrant women, they're women with mental health issues, they're women with addiction issues. And what we are saying is that it is not acceptable to be able to exploit these women in a trade in, that is very very largely run by organised crime gangs. So I suppose this isn't about ideology, there's plenty of evidence. The evidence from the Nordic countries is that once you bring in a law like this, it does deter buyers, you reduce the demand, the trade shrinks in size and there are less women being exploited. It's very hard evidence, that there's no disputing it. The evidence is there, it works. Could I okay. respond to that, Shane? Kate, I was going to Great. say, do, do respond <laughs> yeah, to that. The evidence it, is there. Absolutely. If you look at the uh, Swedish police reports and the Swedish Board of uh, National Health and Welfare, you can see that, that they are saying very clearly that there's no discernible difference in the size of the sex industry. And again, you know, yes, it, it did go off the streets um, nearly entirely, and it's bounced back nearly entirely. And, um, you know, what we do know is you hear, for example, um, a, a work in, in Norway saying in the Amnesty report that came out in their full support for decrim, which is what we want, she said, you manage a situation by yourself to the end if you're in trouble. You only call the cops if you really think you're going to die because you have too much to lose. So you see that it's the people who are the most vulnerable and who are suffering the most abuse that are compromising their safety the most and unable to get the help that they need. You know, we, we would be so there's a lot of evidence, like I said, you know, even if they did, you know, make a make a sex industry that stagnates in size and just sort of shifts around, um, it's at the cost of people's health and and well being. Okay, I, I I do I remember a a survey that came out last year. It was Ruama who did the survey as part of a, a say no uh, urging men not to. Uh, to uh, to to use prostitutes, I, I was I was involved. I should I should declare I was involved in the campaign uh, myself, uh, urging men not to do so. But I remember one of the um, the survey results. I think it was ninety two percent of men in Ireland hadn't paid for sex and wouldn't pay for sex. The figure in countries where prostitution was legal 
was considerably higher than that. Is there an argument that says if something is made legal uh, and you're, you're basically giving a green light for it to happen, you're, you're normalising it? I, I think the, the main issue is that we acknowledge that people are selling sex out of financial necessity and it's about how to keep them safest. It's, it's not saying that we think that prostitution is a wonderful thing or something. It's just that it does happen. And so what is the legal infrastructure that can really best realistically protect the people involved? You know, I'm a realist. I, I speak with sex workers every day. I work and speak with sex workers every day. And, and what, what we want is, is really to just be able to work safely and to, for there to be viable alternatives invested in but that if in case we do want to stop the work but while that's happening we need the work to be to be safe you know mind you there there are nearly 20 percent 20 some percent of workers in ireland are male workers nearly five percent of workers in ireland are are trans workers and what we're really looking for is 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 just for the the basic infrastructure to be uh, a legal system that really realistically protects us, okay, realistically okay, let, increases let's relationships bring it, Let's with bring police. Ruth back in on that. Uh, Ruth, prostitution is a reality, and by criminalising it, you're actually uh, making those people, women more vulnerable. Well, the fact is you hit the nail on the head there a moment ago, Shane, in terms of what happens if you legalise or decriminalise an industry like this. An industry that we've got to bear in mind is, in, is really, really very significantly run by organised crime gangs. What happens when you legalise or decriminalise, when the state is essentially steps out of it? What you get is a massive explosion in the industry, which is exactly what we have seen in Germany and the Netherlands. You get a huge explosion of, yes, there's a growth in the legal industry, and then underneath that, um, uh, an even greater growth in, in the illegal industry. There is very clear evidence to suggest that there is more sexual exploitation and more trafficking in those countries that have legalised. If you look at countries that have introduced this law and it's been there in place uh, for some time in the Nordic countries, uh, it's not an attractive destination for traffickers because they know it's not going to be an easy place for them to operate. So you tackle them at that level. You tackle them in terms of where they're going to be making their money. Uh, you know, this in terms of what we're calling for in Ireland, this isn't about, you know, fining loads of guys for going out and selling sex. This isn't really what that's about. It's not about collecting fines. It's just that message, that message that you know what, that this is not okay. There are vulnerable women in this trade and it's not okay to buy them and it is not okay to feel the organised crime gangs that benefit and profit from this trade. Could I Kate, is, is, that, yeah, is that not a good message to be sending um, out? Again, uh, ideology cannot replace harm reduction. You know, it, it's it's like fighting a drug war. We don't love how heroin manifests in people's lives, but people don't deserve to to die so that we can all just wave the flag of saying we hate heroin. We, you know, I mean, the fact that Ireland we're not is, talking about legalizing heroin. The, the fact no? that uh, the fact uh, in terms of opening injecting centers, how people are talking about okay, that, okay, and that's I, I, what we're talking sure. about: harm reduction. Yeah, I'd like to say in New Zealand um, and and Australia where they have the model that sex workers want, which is decriminalization, what has happened is that, for example, it is, it's way easier to work by, uh, by and for yourself compared to Germany and Holland, where the over-restriction means that there is a lot of organized crime again because people fall through the cracks. In New Zealand, you can very easily get a, um, a license for up to four women working together. So what happened was big brothels went away when they brought in decriminalization, and what 
what what rose up, what became the popular mode in the sex industry, are these these co-ops, these uh, these small owner uh, operated brothels, and people are able to hold if they are working with um, with third parties to a legal standard, and they have good relationships with the police, and the stigma is is decreasing, and 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 that's a really important thing. Ruth, do, sure. do you that those New Zealand Australia examples? Do you accept? I'll, that? I'll just come back to, first of all to Kate's point about harm reduction. Harm reduction is a central part of working with women in prostitution, and it is absolutely part of what we do in Rahama. So when a woman comes to us, she often comes to us in crisis. She's got an emergency. You know, there's something going on for her that's a mental health issue. She's about to be evicted. She's been assaulted. So we always deal with those kind of crisis issues first. So harm reduction needs to be done, and I think that we also do that very well because we work with the Women's Health Project as part of the HSC in terms of um, addressing issues women have with their sexual health and so on. But it, it sells people short to just do harm reduction. You've got to take it to the next step. So that's exactly what we do when we've b- built trust with women. We talk to them about what, what are your future options? What are your future plans? And by and large, what we will find is that women will say, don't want to be in this anymore. I want to get out. Can you okay. help us? Okay, unfortunately, we, we have to leave that. Sorry, uh, Kate, I don't have time to, to come back to you. Uh, my thanks to Kate McGrew of the Sex Workers Alliance Ireland and Ruth Breslin, a Policy and Communications Manager at Ruamit. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's the time uh, where we look back at some of the stories that made headlines over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, Jack Murray, CEO of Media HQ, joins us in studio. Jack, how's it going? Jen, how, are how are you? How are you doing? Um, I'm good, thanks. And thanks indeed for coming into us. Um, I see you're wearing a bit of a hipster shirt, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll come back to that in a, in a few moments. Um, politics for slow learners. It's been, a, it's been a tedious process. You said something to me a few weeks ago. You came over to me. I was in the news, in, uh, sitting at my desk, and you came over with a, with, with a, a theory. And it's, it's proving quite prophetic almost, is it? Well, I'm, I, like, I'm glad I was peddling my wares uh, about four or five weeks ago because when I, I was in and out of here over the election. And when I sat down, I, I, like, I think you, people will look at the last couple of weeks and it'll be kind of where's the abacus in that. Um, I had a theory straight after the election that um, I'm a big fan of House of Cards and the first day back where they went to elect the Taoiseach, when I looked at all of the options that were before Micheál Martin, I thought that he should have stood up and said, if you want new politics, I am, it's a new departure in, in Irish politics today. I'm not going to, the Fianna Fáil would not oppose Enda Kenny as Taoiseach. And what would have happened in one foul swoop would, would have been that Fianna Gael would have gone in unopposed, Fianna Fáil would have stole a march on Sinn Féin, and that Enda Kenny would have to come on bended knee. And I think what's happened in the last couple of weeks um, is I found it hugely frustrating in that a lot of old thinking to solve a new problem. And I think that politics for slow learners means that six weeks down the line, they're coming to this viewpoint now that actually we need some big idea and they're being mm. brought to it kind of kicking and screaming. Now, it's an interesting idea and I, I thought it was an interesting idea at the time. I suppose the difficulty for Fianna Fáil at that stage was they had fought the election saying we want to get rid of this crowd. And then at the first opportunity, if they turned around and said, well, actually, we're facilitating Enda Kenny becoming Taoiseach, are they not breaking their election pledge by doing that? The reason I think it's such a genius idea, it's kind of like wolf in sheep's clothing. So it's kind of like the Talis strategy in reverse. So when you, when you bring big ideas into play, you change everything. 
And by doing that, you would have changed absolutely everything. The other idea that I've been kind of fixated on in the last couple of weeks, and I've done a lot of reading on it, is this fixed-term Parliament Act, which they have in the UK now, which means that once you have an election, you can't have another election for four or five years. So you're actually saying the system would become quite like America, where it would be, yeah, we're going to have a minority parliament and you're just going to have to get along with it. There are some ways you can get around that, though, aren't there? But like this whole kind of preoccupation with instability being at the heart of everything, if you knew you could have a minority government and you had to negotiate a programme through that, you could get through that. But I think what's been like, I think we've had a vortex of leadership and it was really funny. Um, there was a brilliant photograph on the front of the Irish Times today of Michal Martin with a kind of a cross vexed face. And I got massive reaction during one of the leaders debates when you'll get this cultural reference when I said it was it, it was his. What are you talking about? Willis face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> different he, strokes, yeah. different strokes, where he gets kind of very high pitched and very corky, and kind of the finger comes out. And he had a brilliant campaign, and that I always thought he was a far better prospective Taoiseach than he ever was. I was speaking to a Fianna Fáil person today, and it's insane. He said he won the respect of the Fianna Fáil people. He, yeah. le- he for God's sake, he's the leader of the party. Yeah. But I think whatever capital he had has evaporated, and yeah, it hasn't evaporated. Well, I don't think, okay, th- th- that's probably overstating. But he's, I, he's single-handedly pretty much saved the party. Yeah, but I do think that if they had done this masterstroke, it would have been actually saying, you know what, people want new politics, we're going to give it to you. And but if it, it all collapsed in eight but weeks... But Enda Kenny is getting all these plaudits for his, in inverted commas, masterstroke of uh, of wrong-footing uh, Micheál Martin the other day by saying, why don't you come in to, uh, to a partnership government? Is that one of those masterstrokes that's a masterstroke for a day or two and then when it actually once once the sort of the gloss goes off, you know, he's left kind of going, okay, well, what do I do now? Well, I think the astonishing thing about politicians, I worked for them for a large number of years. There's political leaders in this city tonight or wherever they are that around the country thinking, if there's an election in the morning, I could win ten more seats. That's how dysfunctional they are. They're thinking I might win more power. And I sat as my children. Edith Kenny is not one of those because I don't think he would lead them into another election. Well, the interesting thing is, like, I, I sat as I... The interesting thing about Enda Kenny is I sat with my... When my I was trying to force... As my children were force-feeding chocolate into their faces on uh, Easter Sunday and I was trying to get them involved in... As I was in West Cork and they were watching the reading of the proclamation, I saw Enda Kenny and I thought... What is he going to do in the next four years that's going to top this? And it's a really weird thing that happened in the last couple of weeks. In 100 years, the footage will be shown. He probably was up there with a knot in his stomach as a caretaker Taoiseach thinking, God, this didn't work out like how I thought it would. And, you know, if he had any sense now, he'd think, you know what, I've achieved everything I need to achieve. But politicians don't work that way. Yeah, or maybe he wants to be the first Fine Gael Taoiseach to be returned as Taoiseach and then bow out in maybe six months' time. And that's, you know, some people would argue that that's a bit of a kind of counting exercise at this stage. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Uh, just before we move on, what, what do you think? Everyone's in a flap about an, an election. I still don't think we'll have another election. I think a government will be put together. Do you, do you agree or do you disagree? I still think what my hunch was that we have just discussed I think that could happen and I think that I think that Fianna Fáil will abstain next Thursday maybe and they will they will abstain and that Fianna Gael could get in with like imagine like a plague on all your houses the one thing that you'd always want in the worst set of circumstances so you have all of the 15 ministers and you have to negotiate for everything and if people this nonsense that was going on during the week about the prayer and this, when I hear Michal Martin saying we made good progress on the structure of the doll this is what political reform yeah. Is about. It's not about those small details. Here's a question. It's not maybe not a popular one to ask. The independents, uh, it, would it be a good thing to have them a cabinet? I mean, I hear some of the questions that were asked uh, in the negotiations. 
were pretty depressing. I mean, apparently at one stage there was a big conversation about, I'm told, about um, how there was too much planning in this country. And if we would less planning... Uh, we'd be much better off. I now, heard that the Healy Rays were conducting their clinics while the negotiations. Yeah, and at I mean, one stage, the Taoiseach was interrupted for a call from a constituent in Kerry. But I th- the one thing that did depress me about all of that was I, it was old thinking for a new problem. And if you're minding mice at the crossroads and you're minding 18 mice at the crossroads and you're trying to deliver a programme and then you produce a document that has a kitchen sink in it, that's not what people want. People voted for it. They said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to give you a tapestry and you sort out the problem. You give us new politics. And mm. they, hopefully they will come to the realisation that that's what they need to do. Mm, OK, it's going to be interesting. OK, let's move on to a completely different uh, topic. Apparently, if you marry an intelligent woman, you're more likely to uh, defeat dementia. Apparently, a brainy partner acts as a buffer to the disease. Now, we're very fortunate. Yes, we're very fortunate. We both married highly intelligent women. Yes, I was joking in the office. I think I said I better check out my hip flexibility because I'll be going around in a Zimmer frame torturing everybody if this <laughs> if this theory is correct. So um, there was a study done um, in the University of Aberdeen and they looked at dementia um, and they looked at it from a number of different angles. So one of the things they said was being intellectually engaged and there was a really interesting line in it was that the, the professor said what a young man is never told if you want to have a happy healthy and long life marry a bright intelligent woman it's not something when you're in your 20s that someone actually takes you aside and says it to you mm. but that the study proves that the more intellectually, intellectually engaged I have a, a neighbour who is well into her 90s and uh, uh, up until about 18 months ago was the most vital intellectually engaged woman I'd ever met and as I would be skulking on the sofa watching the Champions League she'd be tapping on my window asking did, she, did I want her to pull the weeds in the front <laughs> garden so it's always embarrassing it's yeah. always embarrassing so I think like, it is that point that if you if, you're, if your partner in life is bright and intellectually engaged with you and you're thinking through concepts and I know from, from aunts and uncles that I have where they get on intellectually you know yeah. anecdotally because, I mean, the cliche would be that a lot of men go for, uh, you know, the good, a good looking wife rather than, now, of course, you can have both, ideally. But, yes, this uh, is true, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, like, men wouldn't be, women, I think, tend to look for intelligence and sense of humour in their partner more than men or is that is that a bit of a dated cliche yeah and like, like I th- like I think I, I think part of it too is that you know when you when you get on in life too I suppose the things that are more important to you you know that the, the, the woman who is a stunningly good looking woman at 25 may not be the same at 45 or 55 Ooh, be careful <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's that thing Shane it's a very profound point but it's you know they say that you should marry someone that you love from the inside out and not from the outside in okay that is very profound alright <laughs> <laughs> okay Let's move on to something that isn't profound at all, Donald Trump. Um, No, less Donald Trump and more this issue of uh, a number of people railing against the internet and how it is actually quite a similar topic, I suppose. It's kind of devaluing public discourse. Peter Preston wrote a fantastic piece in The Observer on on Sunday. Tell us who Peter Preston Uh, is. Peter Preston writes an opinion, a media opinion column in The Observer, but um, Obama weighed in on this and he talked about how um, the media with the internet the media wasn't doing their duty and that basically um, that the lowest common denominator the celebrity gossip um, the comments on the internet that that's what leads it and it becomes about it becomes it might seem a bit ironic and this not to say it becomes about cheap opinion but it becomes about opinion and it becomes about clicks so mm. you get into that environment and you introduce Donald Trump into that environment um, and that 
the more outrageous the claim, and this is the kind of Fox News culture as well, that people react to it and that news streams could become about how the web page is optimised, where the clicks are, where you can drive the revenue. So um, one of the analogies in the piece that I found fascinating was that if a newspaper circulation goes down 17%, the the editor gets fired. If Vice News circulation goes down 17%, the head of online advertising gets fired. Mm. So you can see kind of where the model is going there. John Simpson weighed in on it then and was talking about how, you know, public service media used to care about things that mattered but it's now all about uh, celebrity It's an interesting argument I I, I was in um, Cross McGlen over the, the, the summer in South Armagh and there's a, there's a great pub there Shorts Pub and I was very taken by something they had all these newspapers from the 1930s 40s 50s 60s 70s up on the wall um, you know the Irish Independent and various papers and the thing that jumped out at me half the stories were foreign stories on the front page. And it would be things like Truman wins key vote on Treasury Department or whatever on the front page of the Irish Independent. And I was thinking there is no way now that you would have a story like that on the front page of any national newspaper. Well, the, the other bit in the piece that I found fascinating was uh, Martin Bellum. And Martin Bellum is the social editor of The Guardian. And... Um, when the bombings were in Lahore a couple of weeks ago, um, he checked in with the office and they were the top of the news and they were they were pushing them hard. But then he went on to what the 10 top stories were and that the bombings in Lahore, which were as catastrophic as uh, as what happened in Brussels, there was a story about a logic puzzle above it. There was a story about a woman who was having lots of sex and wasn't happy with her sex life. And these were rating higher in it than, than that. There was a very interesting quote by Paul Mason, who's a well-known British journalist, and he says, you'll find that the far right didn't quite achieve what the internet is achieving. A culture that sees offensive speech as a source of amusement and the, and the ability to publish racist insults as a human right. And the internet becomes a place that becomes a magnet for that. Mm. And if you introduce Donald Trump into that, um, the reason that any, if you go to, I have a lot of these uh, American news apps and I know it is the presidential campaign, but the three of the top five stories on every app is Trump, 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 Trump. And the greater the insult and the greater the slur, and it doesn't matter if it's about the wall or immigrants Mm. or it's a sexist comment, they'll be carried because they're driving traffic. It is ironic though, as the world has never been smaller and yet our interest in other parts of the world seems to be less and less. Well, like, you know, the Daily Mail has the biggest uh, mainstream newspaper website, one of the biggest in the world, and it's not for its high-minded uh, content. No, and yet, there, I'll, I'll be honest, there's something very addictive about it when you get pulled in. Oh, what's Ben Affleck doing now? I mean, you do, it does draw yeah. you in, doesn't like it? Like the nonsense that you get drawn into, like, um, 14 celebrities that were good-looking when they were yeah. children. Oh, you've and, you one, yeah. <laughs> and then you click and you go, what am I doing here? Yeah. Why am I doing this? And yeah. it, no, it plays right. tricks with your brain. It does, it does. Okay, come here, I was slagging you about your hipster yeah. shirt uh, when you came in. Um, there's a, there's a kind of a mathematical equation, apparently, that, that tells you how you, if you are a hipster or not. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is it's what's called the hipster paradox. So a lot of people get to being a hipster. And I think we should remind the listeners what a hipster actually is. Yeah, because what is the, it? Well, um, l- l- let, me, let me just enlighten you. Um, composed of affluent, affluent or middle class young people, so that rules the two of us out, uh, <laughs> who reside primarily in uh, gentrified neighbourhoods, broadly associated with indie or alternative music, 
and various non-mainstream fashion sensibilities. Full beards. I don't have a full beard. So you I'm have wired. a beard, though. Yeah, I have a beard. Not a full beard, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tattoos. Uh, che- Any tattoos? Che- no tattoos. Check shirts. I, I only own one. Vintage clothes. You might be in that bracket. <laughs> <laughs> Generally progressive views. Organic foods. And no, definitely not like progressive views. Celiac right? diet. I'm there. Check on that one. Um, and so there is... So, so people who strive to be different. And, and the hipster paradox is... And By striving to be different, you all become part of a club. Yeah, and that if you if you wanted to continually be a hipster, your life would be a wreck because you'd continue. You now, I am so associated in my life with if it's the five percent, I'll be there. For God's sake, I worked for the Progressive Democrats. Yeah, don't exist <laughs> yeah. anymore. Minority um, interests. Yeah, and uh, so so that's the hipster's paradox. So that the, uh, and as a result, that you can only be a hipster for a short period of time because you'll only be you'll only be associated with for a couple of years of your life. Is what is what is what the equation says. It's quite sad, really, isn't it? It is quite sad. The, the, it's a quite. An, I think I only heard the concept of hipster about. Is it like two or three years? Could it be that? Uh, well, it, it, it the, the the new like it was back in the thirties and forties, and the new wave of it comes. It's they say millennials, which which is anybody who was born since nineteen eighty. But um, the new wave of it is sort of uh, just after the dot com boom in the kind of two thousands. But like in Dublin, I live I live in Harold's Cross, and every day I push through Dublin Eight, which is hipster central. It and, is. Wh- and what you see in hipster central is you see our newest dog cafe pop. There's new bakeries. There's MVP, which is seen is our local pub for the office, which is seen as a hipster pub where, you know, and like I feel at one in a place like that. The music is not too loud. It's kind of tranquil. You can have a spud box. You can talk to the person okay. beside you, you. You kind of identify a little bit. I kind of, thing, uh, yeah, not, yeah, I'm telling the world now, but I kind of do. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. If only we were 10 years younger. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, come here. Um, uh, what age are you when you get your your peak in terms of having friends or well, the, the number of friends. Yeah, this is a story that came out during the week about about when you are at your kind of sweet spot um, for having friends. I, I think about this a lot because um, I work with organisations to tell stories and there's an interesting phenomenon um, in how stuff is shared online. And uh, Paul Adams, who came to prominence during the week, he's former Facebook, who's in, in that company, Intercom, which is just around the corner here. But there's an equation of 5, 15, 50 and 150. And these are the groups of people that we share information towards. So your five is your family. They're, yeah. your, they're your immediate family. Your 15 is your emotional support group. The way you know if someone's in your emotional support group or not is if anybody in that group died, you'd be devastated. The 50 is your friends, the people that you know and you w- would meet from now and again. And then the 150 are the people that you know. So the people that you know, it's the classic number for an Irish wedding. It's a productive factory unit. It's the size of a village. What the study that came out this week showed was that you're at your peak friendship age at 25. And once you get beyond 25, your number of friends in the world completely drops off, which is, you know, it's a bit sad. And what happens is it stabilizes, thankfully, at 45. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And it stabilizes at 45 to 55. And then it begins to kind of crash after 55. Curiously, from the study, which I thought was interesting, in that um, it's it's men, not women, up to the age of twenty five. One of the things about, and I, I'm in an office of people um, in their early twenties. One thing that really fascinates me about younger people now is the inability to use the telephone. Yeah. So, um, and it's a real old man bugbear thing of mine, where they'll say, "Oh, I emailed them. Did you ring the person?" Yeah. And uh, but but they say that there's a huge amount of contact before twenty five, and then and then it and then it falls off, and uh, it's as people get married. And then it's that thing, it's that concept where, you know, the the female 
in the house in, in, in a marriage generally tends to be the social secretary. And uh, in, in my yeah. house, anyway, and that's in, all my in friends. In terms have. of well, like, organising for... It's uh, funny, like, when men get married, kind of catching up with people, men can be terrible at contacting yeah. their friends, I find. I, I have lots of friends who I love dearly who are hopeless at staying in touch. Yeah. Whereas, the, you know, your wife will tell you where you need to be at the appointed time and who's calling over <laughs> what party is happening <laughs> and where you need to be. And I think that's part of the, the process of, of, of losing off in friendships as well. Mm, and yeah. once you get past once you get past 25, you, you make very few genuinely new friends in your life. Yeah. Okay. I think I've probably more friends now than I ever had. Mind you, judging by some of the texts during the week, I think I have more <laughs> enemies <laughs> as well. Anyway, um, somebody says, Jack, you're an artificial hipster at, at best. That's that's kind of harsh, isn't it? Yeah. I don't have a tattoo. No. <laughs> and I have a short beard. Yeah. No, Jack Murray, CEO of MediaHQ.com. Genuine bona fide hipster as well. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you, you my vote. Uh, listen, thanks for your company for the last uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, Jack Murray, thanks indeed.